The use of medical marijuana is widely being debated by states all over the United States. But what is the data for its use? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're talking with Dr. David Cassaret, author of the new book, Stoned, a doctor case for medical marijuana. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be back with you. So you are a palliative doctor by trade? Yeah. So I did a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine. I'm the director of hospice and palliative care at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. So I'm both an administrator and I also take care of patients near the end of life. So you use lots of strong, potent medicines. So what were your thoughts about medical marijuana prior to investigating this book? You know, honestly, a year and a half ago before I started this process, I thought of medical marijuana as a joke, really. A patient asked me whether it might help her, and I said, no, it's it's not legal in Pennsylvania. It's an illegal drug. There's no data to support its use. And she, about a year and a half ago then, pulled out a couple of research studies, randomized controlled trials of medical marijuana for neuropathic pain out of her, her pan bag and showed them to me, and I'd never seen them before. I didn't even imagine that there were randomized controlled trials of marijuana So that made me realize I I didn't know a lot uh, about it. I had lots of opinions, lots of preconceptions, but no real knowledge. And it also made me realize lots of other people don't either. Like Lots of people think it's the best thing out there or it's a horrible, evil drug. But many people who have opinions have not really taken the time to look at the facts. That's, That's what I tried to do. How has marijuana changed probably since the days of Cheech and Chong? Is it more potent? How how has it overall changed? Well, it's certainly become more potent if you believe studies of confiscated marijuana. So marijuana is confiscated by law enforcement. In general, those concentrations of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the, there are many cannabinoids in marijuana, but that's, the THC is the cannabinoid that, that makes you feel high or, or stoned. Those concentrations have gone up, depending on the study you read, anywhere from twofold to about sevenfold over the last 10 or 15 years. So it's definitely gotten stronger One of the biggest changes, though, is in how it's available. Fifteen years ago, you could buy marijuana and roll a joint. Now, particularly with medical marijuana dispensaries, you can use vaporizers, brownies, concentrated oils, extremely concentrated products like shatter or wax, which are sometimes 70 80% THC. So lots and lots of products out there, lots of things to choose from, not a whole lot of information about what each of these products does or what it could do for you or to you. And maybe, at least probably when I went to medical school, I don't really remember them talking about cannabinoid receptors, but it it sounds like that's a bigger deal kind of maybe since I graduated from medical school. Well, it definitely is a bigger deal, and a lot of the research that's gone on has been in a little bit in the 80s, more in the 90s, certainly more now, into understanding how the ingredients of marijuana do what they do. Certainly the the so-called endocannabinoid system, the, the system of receptors in all of us that bind to natural neurotransmitters like anandamide, marijuana does what it does by essentially hacking into that system and fooling the body into thinking that the THC in marijuana is one of our natural endocannabinoid neurotransmitters. All of that science has really come about in the last 15, 20, 25 years. I'm not sure how much of that is making it in medical school, though. I mean, the science is definitely there. It's real, and there are real researchers doing this this work. But I think our medical students now, here where I am at the University of Pennsylvania, still don't get exposed to much of that, which is it's only fair. And, and if you had asked me before reading your book, I could have come up with THC, but I would not have come up with CBD. Can you kind of talk about THC versus CBD? Yeah, so everybody knows about THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the cannabinoid in marijuana that makes you feel high, euphoric, stoned. 
CBD or cannabidiol is, is sort of a quiet cousin. It doesn't, as far as we know, have any psychoactive effect. You could smoke or otherwise ingest 10 times as much CBD as, as somebody does THC in a joint and not feel any different which makes it really interesting from a medical perspective because if it has medical benefits, and many people are starting to think it does, you could get those medical benefits without any of the psychoactive effects of THC. What those medical benefits are, I think, is still up in the air. One example is neuropathic pain, so pain that's due to, to nerve damage. There are a couple of researchers, among them Barth Wilsey, who's an anesthesiologist at UC Davis, who I spent some time talking with, who's convinced that CBD might have an important role in treating neuropathic pain. And then, I think it's in the spotlight these days, kids with epilepsy, those particularly with Dravet syndrome, parents are reporting that those kids' epilepsy seems to respond really, really well to highly concentrated CBD oil. That still hasn't been tested in a randomized controlled trial. A guy named Oren Davinsky at NYU is doing a clinical trial right now of, of CBD oil, so we'll, we'll see for, for certain. But it may be that CBD offers a lot of the benefits of, of marijuana without some of the high or euphoric feeling that is a turnoff for many physicians, certainly, and often patients. So you talked about seizure disorder. You talked about neuropathic pain. Which, which would be the things that you feel that in going through all this and meeting some patients, you feel the literature is real strong to say, I think there's something there that this will help this population. Yeah, sure. So certainly in terms of talking with patients, researchers, also reading the studies that have been done, reading them critically, I think some of the best evidence is for neuropathic pain, also for muscle spasticity, particularly as it, as it occurs in conditions like multiple sclerosis. That's where some of the best data are, I think. There's also some data for the treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea, also some data for the treatment of anorexia, not weight loss, but probably anorexia with chronic illnesses like cancer and, and AIDS. I will say that there are a lot more reasons why people use it. Chief among them probably is PTSD. A lot of patients use it for PTSD, and we don't yet have any randomized control trial data to support it. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means we don't know yet. So a lot of people's use of marijuana has gotten years ahead of, of what the clinical trial data show. So where's medical marijuana on the FDA's kind of hit list? Which class do they put marijuana in? It's right now classified as a Schedule One substance. And there are many people who argue, and I think I have to agree with this, that that makes research really, really difficult. Schedule one substances are those that are designated as having significant risks, particularly risk of addiction, but no medical benefits. And although I think the risk of addiction in marijuana is significant, I mean, in marijuana addiction is a real medical condition, I think there's probably enough data out there supporting marijuana's benefits, so you can't really honestly say it has no medical benefits. So there are many people who argue for reclassifying it as a Schedule II drug to make it easier to do research on, as easy at least as doing research on, on opioids. There are other people who argue, frankly, it shouldn't be scheduled at all. You know, there are other drugs like nicotine and tobacco or alcohol that have health consequences, limited medical benefits that aren't scheduled at all. So those two camps are, are fighting to try to figure out a way to either downgrade that schedule class or to remove it from that scheduling altogether, both to increase access and then also to increase availability of, of research and research funding. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're talking with Dr. David Cassaret, author of Stone, A Doctor's Case for Medical Marijuana. Now, and I think that that's what becomes so hard, and the states that have legalized this FDA 
classification. What's happening in Colorado? How can you have a class one substance and have it legal? Well, it becomes very, very confusing. Something is an illegal drug on the federal level, but it's something that's permitted, even, you could argue, encouraged at the the state level. It puts it, medical marijuana puts it in a, a very strange category. So states can permit its use, dispensaries can operate, but those dispensaries run into a lot of problems if they try to, they ship products across state lines or even problems with banking. We discovered with with Stoned that very, very difficult actually for us to sell books through dispensaries because that means that Penguin Random House, my publisher, would need to ship books to these marijuana dispensaries from New York, say, where it's not legal, to Colorado where it is, and then would have to accept payments from an entity, a dispensary, who's doing something that would not be legal in New York and is not legal according to federal law. Lots of legal challenges. So just to use that one example, I would love to sell the book Stone through dispensaries to patients who would benefit from that advice, but we can't figure out how to do that. I guess there's the Amazon route for those folks, I guess. You you visited some of these dispensaries and, and had some very kind of interesting stories of these pot sommeliers, I guess. Yeah, interesting, both in good and bad ways. You know, I, I met some dispensary workers, visited some dispensaries that really did an amazing job at providing good, thoughtful, scientific even evidence-based advice to patients. That actually led to a New York Times op-ed that I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago arguing that there's actually a lot that the, the healthcare system could learn from these pot dispensaries. They, they really are good at listening, asking, supporting, educating patients in ways that a lot of us as physicians can't afford to do. You know, our patients wait in a waiting room for 30 minutes. They get five minutes with a physician, leave with a prescription, and that's it. Some of these dispensaries will spend literally hours with patients educating them. So a lot of dispensaries are really, really good, and physicians who give medical marijuana recommendations can be very, very good, caring, compassionate, thoughtful, and good teachers. But there are also some real fly-by-night organizations, and I think that's going to be the real challenge as medical marijuana takes off. How can we make sure that patients who are getting a lot of advice from these dispensaries are getting good advice and are able to get a good, reliable product, whether that's a a joint or a gummy brayer? They, They need to know exactly what's in that, and they need to know how it might or might not help them. So I I learned a lot about, in reading your book, about delivery systems being at kind of pot brownies or gummy bears or drops. And I learned a lot about vaporizers. I mean, vaporizers was one of these things that I kind of knew nothing about. Can you you educate our listeners a little bit about, you know, vaporization? Yeah, like many things in stone, that was a surprise to me, too. Had never heard of vaporizing. But the science is really pretty simple. The, The idea is that some people who want to use marijuana medically want to get those cannabinoids, mostly THC and CBD, others potentially, into their systems, but don't want to smoke, either because they have pre-existing lung disease or they're just turned off by the idea of inhaling smoke. Vaporizing is really a good solution for them and for many people because it heats the marijuana bud to a temperature that's hot enough to get those cannabinoids, THC, CBD, others, to turn into vapor but not hot enough to actually set that bud on fire. So you wind up inhaling those THC, CBD in a vapor form, but you don't inhale the smoke and particulates and all the the nasty stuff that 
that can cause bronchitis. What did you find about lung issues overall for marijuana? Yeah, that was a surprise. You know, you'd think that smoking joints would cause lung disease. Emphysema, at least, lung cancer, throat and neck cancer. It turns out that's not true. There have been a couple of really, really good long-term large studies that have failed to find any real meaningful effect on lung function um, or an increased risk of, of cancer. There certainly are, for heavy smokers, heavy marijuana smokers, some subtle changes in pulmonary function tests, like a decrease in FEV1, an increase in total lung capacity, but nothing that has any real-life physiologic significance. And it's probably just a matter of dose. In general, people who smoke marijuana don't smoke enough to cause that kind of damage. You know, in order to get that kind of damage with cigarette smoke, you need a couple packs a day for decades. Most marijuana smokers don't smoke 20 or 40 or 60 joints a day for for 40 or 60 years. And those who do probably aren't worried so much about their, their pulmonary function test. So, so since I've read your book, I've been talking about your the subject with a lot of other clinicians. And driving seems to be something that becomes kind of one of these worries. You know, if I'm going to have a six-pack of beer, there are clear ways that the, the law enforcement is going to be able to detect if I've drank six beers and issues with driving. What did you find out about marijuana and driving? The short summary is that marijuana impairs your driving at least as much as alcohol does. So you smoke a good portion of a joint, you have no business getting in a car uh, anytime soon. Uh, so that's, that's I think, pretty clear. The, the challenge, though, is figuring out, as, as you alluded to, just how impaired are you. If you've smoked half of a joint, you can be pretty certain that you're in, impaired. Sometimes with edibles, though, where the effect takes longer to kick in and longer to leave your system, it can be very difficult to tell. It can also be difficult for law enforcement to tell. If you get pulled over, there's no test that's the equivalent of a blood alcohol level. In fact, there's not much of an association at all between blood levels of THC or its metabolites and performance on driving tests. So my general guidance to anybody who asks is to make sure that any marijuana use and any driving or operation of heavy machinery, flying planes, or even bicycling, actually, are at least four to six hours apart, longer probably if you're using edibles. You know, until we get better tests, that's probably about as well as, as we can do. So, so, David, at the end of your journey, if you had to testify before Congress and say, you know, I've done all this research, I've traveled the country, these would be my three or four thoughts on medical marijuana, what would they be? Sure. Well, one is that it has significant medical benefits, which was a surprise to me. Second of all, it also has significant risks. We talked about one of them, which is driving. We talked about another that's addiction. There are some other risks that are less certain, but at least plausible. So given that, significant medical benefits, significant risks, for me at least, it makes sense to find some way of regulating it. And I think one of the best ways to do that right now is to legalize medical marijuana and to make sure that we know who's using it and make sure that we're, we're helping them to use it successfully. And to be clear, I'm not arguing for legalizing medical marijuana because it's a wonder drug or because it's perfectly safe, but because it's not. It's not useful for every condition, and it does come with risks. And I think the best way to protect people from those risks 
rather than asking them to go to the corner and buy it from some shady guy on the street, is to get it through a dispensary that can provide counseling, that can provide testing to make sure people know what they're, what they're getting. So it's, it's really kind of a safety argument for me that's gotten me more enthusiastic about medical marijuana. Um, that plus an acknowledgement of its benefits, which are real. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. The book is Stoned, A Doctor's Case for Medical Marijuana, David Cassaret. A wonderful read. I, I, I uh, think everyone in medicine should read so we can be an active participant in this dialogue, which I think we often aren't. You know, when you see a lot of the people testifying, it's not people who are all that well-informed. I think it's probably people reactionary on both ends. So I think this is a nice, well-balanced book. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, great. Thanks. It's great to be here.